First up, though, we're going to talk about another act of vandalism that really will have you shaking your head. It happened at the Old Hastings Mill Store Museum. And joining me to talk more about what happened is Anita Lee, president and caretaker of the Old Hastings Mill Store Museum. Anita, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, uh, Jill. Um, it was nice to uh, being reached out. Well, we wanted to, to touch base with you because I know we talked about uh, the fact that uh, a few months ago the pandemic was threatening the Old Hastings Mill Store Museum and there was a, a bit of a comeback, people rallied, uh, but now there have been some acts of vandalism. Yeah, so last year uh, we, we were on the verge of closing or we had to make a decision to close or uh, the building, to close the museum or not. Um, so fortunately, the, the community stepped up and all came in and uh, helped uh, fundraise. And we raised enough funds to uh, keep us open for the next for 18 months. So we have about another another year worth of funds to keep us open. Uh, but we, 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 the only way that this building is going to keep on opening on the weekends and, and in the summer is having visitors visiting us um, and providing us a donation when they visit. So, yeah. Um, recently, uh, on, Tuesday, like on Tuesday evening, uh, we had a, a, a little setback. Um, the, uh, we had an incident uh, that happened, uh, vandal- uh, vandalism happened now in the building, the oldest building in Vancouver. Um, so, unfortunately, um, that gives us a little bit of, um, we, we have to look back into our security plan and, and ensure that this building doesn't get damaged further. And you've posted a photo of this. So what happened? Um, so on the evening around 5, uh, 5.42 uh, p.m., <laughs> um, uh, there was a group of uh, um, young people were hanging around the park and um, a lot of people Park goers came and told me that there were a group of people, group of young young people were hanging around, and um, suddenly they heard a crash sound, and I heard the crash sound. I was in the in the building at the time, and uh, I went into that room. Uh, fortunately, there was no one in the room, um, but I saw the window was shattered, uh, glass was everywhere, and then I ran outside and ran back in and looked at it was a large rock. And that rock could have severely injured someone. It was about a six inch, two six inch wide and two inch thick rock that went through the window. Um, so it it does it it's it's shattering to us, <laughs> basically. Yeah, I mean, but beside the facts that the fact that there were people in the building, like you said, they could have been hurt had anybody been there, been been in that room when the rock came through. Uh, but also, I mean, it seems like this is uh, somebody for whatever reason. It seems random. Not that I, I can't imagine why somebody would want to do something like this on purpose. A lot of people don't understand this is the oldest building in Vancouver, and it's a historical landmark um, for Vancouver. We're such a young city. We don't have a lot of old buildings, and this is one of the surviving buildings in Vancouver. So a lot of um, the younger generation doesn't understand that the importance of this, why we need to keep this building alive. Um, I would imagine you filed a police report or, or alerted police. Uh, is there any chance of there being surveillance video or have there been other instances that you know of, of vandalism in the area that it might be connected to? Um, no, the police came by and they, they basically said they can't really do anything. Um, we don't have a video camera on that side of the building, unfortunately. We do have some images 
of um, uh, uh, some uh, some some people running in front of the building um, right after the 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 incident. Hmm. Um, so, um, but that will be up to the police if they want to use those footage or not. So. What kind of a repair bill are you looking at as far as getting the windows fixed? Oh, so um, because of our newsletter that went out to um, our local community, a lot of people stepped up. Um, So we had had a similar incident exactly a year ago. Um, Someone used their foot and kicked through the windows, and we were able to call a, a window glass company and Anyways, um, one of the workers there is willing to come and volunteer the time and help us um, uh, replace the, the glass for us. So we are very fortunate to have a community of people who, are, who stepped up. Like the evening of Tuesday, I was distraught. I didn't know what to do. Um, a neighbor, a good neighbor who's a carpenter, just quickly came over and got some plywood, got some nails, and, and helped me seal the, the window so there's no rodents or other further damages to the building. So I'm just grateful for the, the community in Vancouver. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's wonderful to see people coming up and helping like that, but still uh, just so sad that this, had, this happened in the first place. Oh, absolutely. I just hopefully I just hope people understand this is the oldest building in Vancouver and we need to keep it alive in order to preserve history, um, to remember who we were um, and uh, what what we did here. Right. So um, there's 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 always good things happens in the city and we need to remember all the good things, not the negative things. All right. We'll leave it there. Anita, thanks so much for joining us to talk a bit more about this and remind people about the importance of this building. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah. If anybody's seen or heard anything, or um, please contact us or contact the police. Um, I just was doing a shout out. Um, if you are in the park and you notice anybody wanting to damage our building, please step up and stop them uh, before anything happens. Well, the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association has released its State of Downtown 2020 report. And joining me to talk more about this is the president and CEO, Charles Gauthier. Charles, thanks so much for joining us again. Thanks, Jill. Two days in a row. Well, when we were reminded that you're stepping away from the post next month, I think we decided, well, just book Charles every day until you're gone. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Uh, Really interesting numbers in here. What sticks out to you the most as far as uh, the state of downtown given the pandemic? Well, our diversity, which is our strength, actually worked against us, (laughs) you know, this time around uh, because uh, definitely the pandemic, uh, you know, uh, had a a devastating impact to all the sectors. And, uh, you know, we've not seen this happen in our respective uh, lifetime, hopefully never again. But, uh, you know, it, it was a suppression of the economy and it wasn't just our downtown. This happened around the world. Uh, but certainly the uh, the impacts will vary. Uh, you know, I think we fared a lot better than many other cities. Uh, we didn't have the similar kind of lockdowns, and uh, we certainly didn't have uh, the same extent uh, of deaths related to COVID-19, albeit, you know, every person that we lose, you know, is, is a sad uh, occasion. But, um, you know, it, it definitely uh, shows that um, these... Uh, type of events can can have devastating impacts and certainly it, it did for our downtown. 
Uh, taking a look at some of the numbers, and uh, I think we tend to think of Vancouver as kind of uh, more of a, of a met- part of Metro Vancouver. But when we're looking at the downtown peninsula, uh, with about 120,000 residents that live in the downtown, uh, the downtown and the West End part of the city. Uh, but then this report also shows that with people working from home during the pandemic, the workforce population uh, went from about 116,000 people uh, down to 11,000. I mean, that is such a huge drop. Yeah, it is really stunning. Um, You know, in my tenure here at the organization, I would have never thought a pandemic would have uh, arrived here, you know, on our shores, so to speak. You know, we always thought about the, uh, you know, the usual suspects like an earthquake uh, and how that might impact us. But yeah, the uh, workforce population, uh, you know, dipped to a low as 10% of what it typically would be. And, uh, you know, that uh, in itself, $2 million a day in loss retail and restaurant uh, sales uh, as a result of the fact that there wasn't a workforce population here. And we're seeing that, right, how it's impacted our restaurateurs and our retailers and continues to do so. Uh, The only saving grace has been, you know, all the different programs from the federal government, provincial government and our civic government uh, to help out. Uh, these businesses during these difficult times and then programs that BIAs across the city have done like ours in terms of special campaigns like take out to help out and get curbside patios out there to provide a lifeline to our restaurants because you know that is the heart and soul of our city is the culinary arts and you know it really does uh, define our city in so many ways you think about when you travel to other cities and the food experiences that you have and you come back and you talk about how you had the greatest fill in the blank uh, in Paris or, you know, in any other city that you've traveled to. So it's really important that we try to find a way to sustain, uh, you know, our unique independently owned businesses. But the pandemic definitely uh, had an impact uh, on small business, especially independently owned restaurants and, and retailers. Uh, there's also there seems to be a bit of a, a disconnect when we talk about that shrinking of the workforce uh, with the idea that yes people will come back but there's certainly a, a, a thought process that it's not going to come back uh, to the full number that it was before but this report also looks at construction and I think anybody that's been downtown would notice construction has been continuing it didn't really it didn't really slow down no, I mean, there were less uh, development or less permits applied for to build, but certainly uh, the saving grace was that, that we had a number of uh, uh, office buildings that had been approved prior to the pandemic and construction had started, and those are going to start to come online and be occupied over the course of the next uh, few years, and that's going to be about 4 million square feet of additional office space, and, and a large number of those office buildings are committed to in terms of tenants moving in. Uh, and I think that's a good thing because I think they've been able to adapt and, and likely will take into account things that we've learned as a result of the pandemic and how uh, viruses can be transmitted. And I know that uh, those developers have been thinking about how do we make that space as uh, virus-proof as we can. Uh, but, yeah, we, we've not seen a huge impact in terms of uh, office um, uh, vacancies as a result of the pandemic. Um, and But there will be some opportunities for businesses that aren't here uh, to be able to move downtown and take advantage of what I would call amenity-rich circumstances, you know, access to the SkyTrain, into the buses, into everything that we have within easy walking distance in a very compact downtown. 
And uh, we're very bullish and optimistic about downtown's future. I mean, we see that in other cities that are further ahead uh, in terms of recovering from the pandemic, that they are bouncing back and people are going back to work. And yes, it will be different, uh, but uh, downtown will continue to be, uh, you know, a very desirable place uh, for businesses and for people uh, who want to be here. All right. Uh, very interesting uh, findings in this study. Charles, we'll leave it there for today, but thanks again for coming back on the show. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us. Well, joining me now on the line is Dan Levitt, gerontologist and educator, also the executive director of Tabor Village. And we've talked to Dan several times uh, during this pandemic, uh, talking about conditions in long-term care facilities, uh, where mistakes were made, what needs to be improved upon. And he's joining us today uh, to talk about the idea of embracing the longevity economy. Dan, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Great to be here. Uh, you wrote a piece uh, about this. Uh, it's in uh, Business in Vancouver. Uh, again, talking about this looming uh, longevity economy. How do you define that? Well, we know that um, there are more seniors today in Canada than there are children under the age of 15. And we know that the percentage of people over 65 is only going to um, get larger as um, the years go on, especially with that demographic um, group, the uh, baby boomers moving through the population and as they age. So we, we need to um, rethink, um, redesign um, our cities and our economy around that population so that we're really embracing um, aging and we're not perhaps um, discriminating against um, older persons as we have seen in the past, especially with a society that generally is youth-focused. So the idea would be that we would um, give as much importance to a 90-year-old as we do to a 9-year-old. And how do you see that shift happening? Well, I think it has to start with um, having an honest conversation about ageism, um, thinking about um, why do we discriminate against um, elderly? Why, why do we um, try to mask some of the aging um, aspects in our own existence? Um, if you walk into some drugstores, you'll see an anti-aging section, and uh, we're trying to hide... Um, how we age. And I, I really um, you know, applaud uh, the fashion industry, which you know, traditionally um, has, has really focused on, on youth of, of any culture. And you know, in the past uh, year, we've, we've seen things like British Vogue magazine have um, Judy Dench on the cover at 86 years of age. You have never seen that in the past. Uh, we have um, actors um, like Justine Bateman um, publishing a book at 55 years of age, uh, a book called um, face one square foot of skin where she basically was flaunting her her, her aging in her face and saying i'm not going to go um, get surgery and even though there's pressure to do it uh, we've seen um, people on on uh, facebook which i know has an older demographic but we've seen as a 92 year old uh batty winkle a big fan of hers uh, she has 2.7 million followers and she's celebrating aging um, aging, and she has uh, she's celebrating the physiques of older people, and she's also um, doing well financially of it because she's um, getting advertisers to also uh, join in with her. So I think that's generally the first thing we have to do is is look at our own ageism ourselves and even the communities we live in and try to combat that. Uh, do you think there there on the one hand then if we're talking about people who are extremely active uh, doing these things uh, like you mentioned very different than if we're also talking about say uh, somebody who's dealing with health issues uh, dealing with dementia or dealing uh, with some of uh, the more common health issues that uh, people tend to deal with later in life is it does do we also need an overhaul in how we treat that 
Absolutely. And um, one of the bright notes, especially, um, say, in, in television and, and media, which really helps kind of define and reflect on society, uh, was the fact that we saw um, two Academy Awards for the movie The Father. Um, the, the, the screenplay adaptation, of course, Anthony Hopkins in the role of, of being the father. And specifically, um, the story that, that is told there is a story that um, all of us know somebody who has um, lived through the experience of caring for a loved one who has Alzheimer's disease. And uh, the, the, the trauma, the stress that we see in the daughter in that movie, I think that's a story that really needs to be told. And in terms of um, you know, the visual image that we saw and that narrative, um, that's something that um, through the, the television, hopefully one day we'll get back into theaters and see these on the large screen, um, telling that story is so important so that we all understand uh, what people are going through and how as a society uh, we can shift and allocate resources to help people to age in place in their home. And when that crisis eventually does happen, if it does happen to somebody, that there is um, the best possible um, places for them to live, assisted living or long-term care, that really provides the same kind of comforts that you have in your own house. Uh, so do you think there's been a disconnect as far as, and I know you run uh, Tabor Village, but, but like you said, I think if you asked anybody, would you rather stay in your home or go to a facility? I think most people would say, yeah, I want to stay in my home. I would love to. So why hasn't there been more of a focus on making sure there are supports and there are ways to do that? Well, I think one of our challenges is that um, none of us really think about this stuff until we actually have that facing us head on. Um, and uh, even though um, we, we may be approaching those years where over 80, 85 years of age, uh, one in three persons um, is requiring some kind of care, either at home or, or in a place um, where they're uh, living. Or um, if you're not in that one-third of people who require care, you're the other third who's caring for that person. And, of course, the other third are having the time of their life. They're not going to be impacted by that. But so two-thirds of people over 85 uh, require that. And I think because we kind of have a bit of a denial of thinking about that, we're not really focusing on um, shifting those resources into the home. And government can't do everything. There's not enough money available to do this. And I think even ourselves, we have to think about economically, um, are we saving for ourselves? Are we adapting our homes? Are we adapting our communities so that we could, um, should we need to, um, have the comforts in our own home and perhaps avoid moving into other residences and and staying in, in your own house? Uh, you reference as well uh, in the piece that you've written uh, the disability movement in the 1980s and about the changes that that brought about and the awareness that that brought about. Are you, are you suggesting something or, or hoping for something similar when we're talking uh, about, uh, I guess maybe it would be called the aging movement? Yeah, exactly. So I'd, I'd love to see an aging movement. And uh, we used to have a group called the Great Panthers that were really advocating for seniors. And there's lots of advocacy groups, lots of um, groups who are pushing that, that agenda forward. I think we're going to see more and more of that, especially with the baby boomers moving up into that population. And um, so if you think about those changes that happened, we saw those curb cuts. Like that was a group of people who were advocating for um, people being able to be mobile in a place that was really adverse and hazardous for people. Have you ever tried to do it yourself or watch someone to go across a curb where there's no cut, it's impossible. And then we, and then we know that there's the, the audio piece for people who are visually impaired. So, and then we think about how we've adapted our cities for those, for bikers, in terms of having uh, greens, greenways, um, get, getting rid of railway lines and narrowing streets and bridges. So we need to do something like that for seniors. And how it looks really is, if you think about the places where you go buy your groceries or where you bank or... Um, where, where you live, maybe the coffee shop nearby or the, you know, the restaurants. How accessible are these places for seniors? 
especially people who are you know, living alone or who are isolated. And I think it's really improving our marketplaces and our villages so that um, we can embrace the, the older demographic, and we sometimes might put them ahead of ourselves. And we've seen that you know, th- during the pandemic. We saw grocery stores um, having their first um, half an hour or hour of the grocery store just for people who are vulnerable or for seniors. We see it in, in other places um, like farmer's markets. So I think we have to continue to kind of push that envelope and ask how we can make our cities more age and dementia friendly. Oh, and you mentioned money as well. And we've also looked at reports that show with the aging population, uh, there's already going to be a huge uh, question mark over how uh, OAS is paid for, uh, how we're, how uh, the, the GIS is paid for, uh, or uh, and, and how government's even going to pay for that. Uh, so where do you think the focus should be as far as uh, to, to focus on this and to make sure people's lives are fulfilled and they're living their best lives for as long as they can? How much of a personal responsibility do we need to be looking at there? Well, I think those of, of us who can do that, we really have to think about that long and hard and think, uh, are we putting enough money aside for ourselves um, to not necessarily count on governments being there for us? Um, government will do everything they possible, but they're very limited um, in terms of the resources they have. And it, it's, it's likely that, that um, we will be allocating those resources to those who, who need it the most. Uh, those who are you know, living below the poverty line or who are just above the poverty line. So I think we really have to think about that um, very clearly and think also what would it look like if we worked longer, um, if we um, look, work beyond 65, those people who choose to do so, um, that, you know, that retirement age, uh, which is not mandated um, in terms of legislation, but looking at, as you, as you mentioned, um, those government programs, the, the pension plans and um, Social Security, so that we have... Um, the money available to support people um, who, who need it the most. So I think we do have to rethink different government um, programs that are available to seniors. All right, Dan Levitt, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for your time and for talking about this. Thanks, Jill, anytime. Well, we've talked a lot about various different industries. Yesterday on the program, we were talking about tourism and hospitality. The CEO of Accent Inns joined us talking about just how dire things are and how they will need help to make sure there are hotels and resorts and such on the other side of this. Well, today we're hearing from Restaurants Canada calling for a sector-specific support package to help recover more than 400,000 food service jobs in this country. And in B.C. alone, talking about 45,300 jobs still missing when it comes to jobs in the restaurant sector. Joining me now to talk more about this is Mark von Schelwitz, the Vice President for Western Canada with Restaurants Canada. Mark, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Jill. Uh, this specifically uh, kind of lays out what's needed as far as uh, money supports for the restaurant industry. What would you say is the number one thing that restaurants are going to be looking for? Well, certainly, uh, you know, the the wind down of the wage subsidy and the uh, rent subsidy that is supposed to already start this summer is just going to be a real problem. I mean, you've got to remember that restaurants are the third largest employer in British Columbia, and restaurants are key to feeding British Columbia's recovery and bring back jobs. But first, they have to re- survive. And if subsidies are s- scaled back too soon, they won't have the working capital they need to transition from survival to revival. So we've put forward a package that's uh, you know, uh, very much uh, food service uh, specific, Uh, And one of the things we are asking for, and probably the most important, is that uh, the 
the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy don't get scaled back as planned over the summer for the food service industry and that be extended to next April. Uh, because you have to remember, uh, you just looking at the numbers, you know, we've got 80% of our members that are still losing money. We've got half of them that have lost money every single month throughout the whole pandemic. And it's an industry with very low margins. So even once we start getting back to some sort of semblance of normalcy, it's going to take most of our members a year or two to return to some sort of semblance of profitability. So what we don't want to see is a second wave of business closures and even more layoffs. Instead, we should be focused on how can we get this sector through to help uh, you know, employ those 45,300 jobs that are still missing from BC's uh, food service sector. Uh, and, uh, of course, nationally, that, uh, that's a really important one as well. And, you know, we need also, you know, continuing support. And, and the other thing that I would say is what we can't afford right now is to return to business as usual, uh, you know, and add all those extra business costs through other pieces of legislation or regulations that are actually adding costs onto restaurants right now. That's the last thing we need. Uh, and it, it's a pretty dire situation, and we certainly don't want to see these subsidies be the cause of another big uh, second wave of, of restaurant closures. So when you talk about the fact then the uh, rent and wage subsidies, extending those until at least April of 2022, uh, is, it's not that you think we're still going to be in the same position as far as what restaurants look like. It's that even if we are back in a place, uh, and I know the announcement of the United States today uh, promising in that, or hopefully promising, um, that you think we could be back to that that kind of more normal place, but it's kind of catching up? Yeah, and you have to remember, Jill, that we're also in this third wave and we've had a lot of restaurant restrictions extended. And even once we're allowed to reopen again in the coming weeks, it's not going to be to full capacity. I'm sure there's still going to be some physical distancing requirements. So it's going to be several months, I think, before we even return to normal. And then after we do return to normal, we're certainly going to have to generate enough income to pay back all those debts that have been incurred by the vast majority of food services businesses over the last year. So uh, if you pull the rug out from under us a little bit too quickly on those two very important uh, programs, the wage subsidy and the rent subsidy, uh, you know, we, we've heard very clearly from members that uh, uh, they're just going to have to uh, close their doors permanently, and we certainly don't want to see that. Uh, we want to contribute to uh, uh, British Columbians getting back to work and to the recovery, but uh, as I mentioned, we've got to survive to get there, and and these are really important, I think, issues that the federal government's got to look at and treat restaurants, I think, a little bit differently. It's got to be a restaurant-specific uh, relief program, recognizing the unique circumstances that our industry's in. And that's also kind of leads into one of the other points or one of the other measures, and that's the partial forgiveness for all government-backed loans and, and an extending of the application deadline. Yes, exactly. So that that is one of the four points that uh, we've included to to help restaurants through this. Is certainly we also need to you know those that are also eligible for the wage subsidy to apply through the Canadian uh, Recovery Hiring Program. But you know we have to have a business in order to hire people back, and also the partial forgiveness for the government-backed loans and an extension of the deadlines uh, for these programs. Because right now restaurants are facing a huge debt uh, uh, load based on. You know, just to keep their doors open and their lights on, they've had to incur significant uh, amounts of debt. And it's uh, every single month where you're going further and further into debt. So it's going to take us some time uh, to return to normal. And, uh, of course, you know, we also want to ensure that uh, uh, 
governments at all levels are encouraging people to get out there. We have to have the consumer confidence that people can once again go out to restaurants. But uh, the transition from survival to revival is going to still need some government support to get us there. Uh, Is it different depending on where we're looking in the country as far as in BC at least, restaurants where the weather has been cooperating, restaurants have been able uh, to extend their patios and offer patio service, uh, certainly doing takeout as well. I mean, comparing that to some of the restaurants in Toronto, which really haven't had any tables for more than a year. Yeah, no, we're very fortunate to live in British Columbia and hats off to Dr. Henry and and the government. Uh, You know, we throughout this have actually been able to stay more open than a lot of other jurisdictions who are in even worse situations. But here, even in BC, you've got to remember now it's been 14 months that we've been living with these different restrictions, whether it's just physical distancing or liquor time cutoffs, uh, you know, now outdoor dining only. Uh, There was a good chunk of time where it was only takeout and delivery. So uh, the industry is still very much hurting and we're nowhere near. In fact, we're predicting it's not going to be till 2023 until we return to 2019 sales levels for the industry in the province. So, uh, you know, it's going to take some time to get out of this and, uh, Uh, You know, we want to make sure that uh, governments recognize that the restaurant sector is a little bit unique and we may need a little bit more help to bridge us through uh, when we can be profitable again in the coming months. Uh, What do you think of the the numbers? Even with these measures, if all of these measures are granted and this goes ahead, I would imagine there are still going to be restaurants that close permanently. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are some people, and, and I talk to members all the time and, you know, when I talked to somebody two months ago, they say they're barely hanging on. Well, now they're even hanging on less so. So even with those supports in place, I, I still think that once we return to normal, there's there's probably going to be uh, some closures. But we want to minimize that as much as possible. And, and the federal government's got a huge role to play to, to help us get through uh, to next spring, where hopefully by that time we'll be back to 100% normal and we can actually start generating enough revenue so that we can be profitable and start paying back uh, that debt. Uh, but if you, you know, if you reduce those subsidies too quickly, which was announced in the federal budget, uh, you know, over the summer, we're not even in June, probably going to be, you know, fully open yet. Um, and, you know, those subsidies are already starting to to um, uh, wind down over the course of the summer significantly. And by the fall, we're, we're really worried that uh, in September, when uh, when these grants are no longer available, there is going to be a bunch of restaurant closures. And, and certainly none of us want to see that happen. And, and certainly, uh, you know, the, the province probably doesn't want to see that happen either because we are such a big employer in the province. And, and we are very crucial to, uh, to British Columbia's recovery from this pandemic. Are there provincial measures as well that that have made a difference and will continue, do you think, uh, to really help restaurants? Uh, I'm thinking about being able to offer up um, alcoholic beverages and takeout orders, uh, the way that uh, alcohol is purchased as far as wholesale prices. Yeah, no, we really appreciate uh, some of the measures that the British Columbia government has brought in. That wholesale pricing was a big issue for us for decades, and and we're really thankful that uh, we now have permanent wholesale pricing. That certainly helps. Other uh, recovery grant helps to an extent, but we've got a lot of people that, uh, for one reason or another, couldn't uh, uh, couldn't qualify for that particular grant. Same with the circuit breaker grant. You know, we appreciate that, but uh, uh, these are. I think it's important to recognize are not making us 100% whole. These are just helping stop the losses. So the losses would be a lot greater without all those those uh, supports. But, uh, you know, without any supports right now, we would have uh, an industry failure rate, which would be closer to about 50% of the industry, which we certainly don't want to see.
No, uh, definitely not. Mark, we'll leave it there and be waiting to see what happens next. But thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for being with us on this Thursday afternoon. Just a reminder, at 2 o'clock today, we are getting an update from the uh, health minister as well as Dr. Bonnie Henry. We'll bring that to you live here on the program. Right now, though, we are taking a look at something that will have an impact on you if you have a wood-burning stove or a wood-burning fireplace. There are going to be some new seasonal prohibitions on residential indoor wood-burning in Metro Vancouver. They are going to be in effect from May 15th to September 15th every year. And joining me to talk a bit more about this is Adrian Carr, who is chair of Metro Vancouver's Climate Action Committee. Thanks so much for, much for joining us today. Oh, what's a pleasure, Jill. Uh, these are new. They'll be uh, throughout Metro Vancouver. So what exactly does this mean for people who do have wood-burning stoves or fireplaces? Yeah, well, it's very simple. If you've got a wood-burning stove or fireplace, you cannot use it um, between May 15th and September 15th. And what happens if you do? Uh, Well, you could be subject to a fine, but that's not really what our bylaw enforcement officers at Metro Vancouver are intending to do at first. At first, it's really about education. Um, uh, If there's a a report that there is uh, smoke coming from um, a unit, they're not going to be out necessarily looking for it, but there is an opportunity, um, if they see it, to talk to the people who are burning wood. Let them know about the problems that are um, caused by that wood-burning smoke, which can be particularly uh, impactful on the health of infants and elderly people and people who, you know, have lung or heart disease, etc. So, um, so it's an education to begin with, pointing people to the website of Metro Vancouver, which has a lot of information about how to actually um, reduce those emissions uh, and make sure in the future, on uh, at times when you could burn, to make sure you use the right kind of wood, your appliance is the best kind of appliance. So um, that's first, but you know what, there's repeat offenses, there are fines. Uh, So how many are we talking about or do we know how many uh, structures in Metro Vancouver still have wood burning stoves or or more traditional type wood burning fireplaces? About 100,000. And what does that do then? What is the issue if everybody was to use those uh, wood burning devices? What is the issue with that on the air quality? It has an incredible impact on air quality. In fact, it is the most significant source of fine particulate matter emissions in our whole region and more than a quarter of all total emissions. So um, that's, that's big. Uh, and those emissions are, as I said a little earlier, really impactful uh, for people who have um, you know, heart or lung or um, uh, disease or diabetes, elderly people, infants. Um, are particularly um, affected. The other thing that's quite interesting about this is it exacerbates this, this kind of fine particulate matter. Um, it is toxic as an air pollutant, and it affects your immune system, and it exacerbates infections, viral infections like COVID. I mean, I don't even remember last year when um, uh, COVID first struck. In fact, the province recognized that through the health authorities and put a ban on all outdoor burning because of the impact it was having um, or it could have on anyone who did get COVID. 
What about people, and I get that this is the time of year where generally the temperature is milder, so maybe people aren't using these wood-burning devices as much, but if it's somebody that that this is their uh, key way that they heat their home, or if it's somebody that uh, this is a more cost-effective way, uh, that rather than use an electric heater or an expensive heater, uh, maybe they're on a fixed income and this is what they use instead, uh, and it's a cool night on, say, September 6th, what do you say to somebody in that scenario? Well, actually, if it's somebody who um, is using uh, a wood-burning appliance to actually heat the home, it's their sole source of heat, there are opportunities to apply for an exemption from this um, if people are low income and um, this enables them to warm their home when they wouldn't want to or be able to pay um, for any other source of heat like electricity or gas, um, there are also opportunities for exemptions. So uh, this is not about penalizing people who really don't have much of a choice. It is about making sure that people who are using um, their wood-burning appliance, whether it's a fireplace or a wood stove, um, more because it is aesthetically pleasing or it's a nice thing to do. I, I have to say, there's a you know part of me that goes, I, I love to sit outside and, and you know be by a fire. My old camping days <laughs> come back. Uh, but, um, but, but it's not responsible now that we know that um, really this is a, the major source of uh, particulate matter that is harmful to people's health. Climate change is creating much more of a potential crisis situation as we saw you know, a few years ago, 2017, 2018, when we got the most phenomenal impacts of wildfire smoke in, in Metro Vancouver from fires all the way as far as California, but certainly Oregon and Washington State. Um, and people were um, very much negatively affected, not being able to go outside needing to find places where they could get clean air if their homes didn't have the kind of filtration necessary. So this is a this is a big health issue, um, let alone, of course, just that, not just the particulate matter, but, but of course, the impact on air emissions that are, you know, very negative in terms of our climate goals. But, you know, this is about health. It's about making sure um, that uh, people aren't negatively affected and everyone pitching in and doing their duty on it. Um, you say it's not meant to be punitive uh, to people, but according to the website, that as of September 2022, people in that live in Metro Vancouver, uh, they will have to register their appliance. And if the appliance doesn't meet the performance standards to ensure low emissions, uh, they will not be allowed to operate it. Uh, d- doesn't that create a whole bit of a, a nightmarish level of bureaucracy? Well, so far it hasn't been a problem, and I don't think it will be in the future. We've got a good system in place for um, providing incentives, for example, to pe- for people to replace um, their uh, their older, less efficient wood burning appliances. There are re- rebates um, offered by the province, I think four hundred dollars that that Metrovan um, helps facilitate uh, for people who want to turn in. You know, a, a really bad emitting uh, uh, wood stove and get a get a much cleaner one um, and that's the way we need to go I mean there are very very high efficient uh, wood stoves that can make a huge difference and so um, it's not about punishing people it's it, it really is about um, helping people take on um, the responsibility that affects all of us in this region to make sure we have clean air.
But if you already know there's 100,000 of these devices, why do you need people to register them? Well, they don't. Um, so <laughs> uh, they need to register them in order so that we can monitor the replacement of them. Because by the time we hit 2025, um, there will, um, you know, high emission wood burning appliances will be banned. And we are going to, by that point, wanting to see only the very low emission appliances or wood stoves being used. Um, so, uh, so to get to that goal, we need to make sure that we are aware of um, the, uh, where, the, where the appliances are right now um, and uh, phase in this program to replace them. All right. Uh, Adrian Carr, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us to talk about this. Yeah, thanks for your interest. Really appreciate it. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.